Hello, hello. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Radio Cachimpona. Radio Cachimpona is an audio archive of the fierce resistance that's happening in the southern Arizona borderlands. And it follows me, Yvette, as in my journey as a civil rights lawyer and an abolitionist trying to make some use of this legal degree. And I'm really excited for this public lit review. Normally, a lit review is a patron-only thing, but every once in a while, I like to do public lit reviews to remind y'all of the really deep conversations that we're having and to encourage you to become patrons. For $5 a month, you can get free, you can get access to two bonus episodes a month where I discuss and analyze a book with a woman of color over a glass of wine. This lit review is super special because I had my Yale sorority sister, Jensi Bess, who is also a first generation salvadoreña. And we had a really great discussion talking about Rigoberta Menchu's memoir, I Rigoberta Menchu. We got into a lot of things, including the racialized dynamics of Guatemala, and in particular, the state-sanctioned ethnocide that was carried out during the Guatemalan Civil War in conjunction with U.S. aid, U.S. military aid. So I hope that you all enjoy. If you support Radio Cachimbona, then please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps. And also... If you can spare the $5 a month, the patron really helps me to be able to make this work sustainable because now that I'm doing weekly episodes and especially the lit review, to make it all quality content takes a lot of time. So I appreciate y'all and hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone, I'm very excited to have my sorority sister, fellow Yale alumna, fellow Salvadoreña, Jen Sipas, <laughs> here today to do a very special lit review where we read Rigoberta Menchu's memoir, but bef- which is called I Rigoberta Menchu or Yo Rigoberta Menchu. And but before getting more into the book, I wanted to do a check in with you and ask how you are during these strange times of sheltering in place and working from home and social distancing, how you've been handling things and also what you've done for self-care this week. Or if you haven't really done self-care, what you plan on doing for the next week. Yeah, well, I was like fortunate enough to be able to work from home really early on so I'm, I'm used to it now and I think we're like getting things figured out pretty well all things considered it is really scary though just being up to date with things is pretty terrifying yeah. and I've noticed that my anxiety has been it just like goes up and down all the time but I mean I'm doing new things now which I, I think is really cool that I'm like able to exercise more and like, enjoy mm-hmm. that like I go on really long walks and I felt like before I didn't have the time to do that that's amazing like yeah like my commute is cut out so like I have that extra like hour 
and it's a really tricky balance between staying informed and then not obsessively reading the media coverage of COVID-19 because I think that I've definitely intentionally taken breaks from the internet because Mm -hmm. of the COVID the constant COVID-19 coverage so I hear where you're coming from but you were saying your uncle yeah okay today we found out he has coronavirus so it's I don't know it's crazy yeah Yeah. I'm just like yeah it's very scary I don't know it it's like I'm I'm very much someone who like tends to start shutting down when I get really bad news so I'm trying to figure out how to like like, as you said be informed and also just like not overwhelm myself too much so yeah Yeah. wow well thank you for sharing that yeah so unfortunate that the U.S.'s lack of prevention has led to so many people getting infected and it's gotten to the point where I just feel like most people at least know somebody close to them who has been infected or yeah yeah and my like my grandpa is also currently in the hospital because and he tested positive for COVID-19 he lives in Sacramento been Mm -hmm. thinking about him a lot and it's I've also been thinking a lot about how because of pre-existing inequities in our healthcare system Mm -hmm. the people who are most likely to have quote-unquote pre-existing conditions are poor black and brown people that's why your right that's why your family member and my family member are are exactly the people who right are who have been put at risk for contracting this unnecessarily. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I just about like, I read one article about 70% of the deaths. I think it's it was in the Midwest. I think maybe right. Chicago. Chicago where, was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, were black people dying and I was just mm-hmm. like, well, yeah. I don't know. It's just it adds like an even extra layer of anxiety. Mm-hmm. to like mm-hmm. to even just like yeah it's just a lot <laughs> it's very overwhelming yeah I know I think about prisons and detention centers a lot and right. the people who are detained yeah. within them and that's mm-hmm. the same kind of structural inequity that ha- just means right now during COVID-19 that more black and brown people are going to die because the Arizona Department of Corrections is not releasing people mm-hmm. at the rate that it needs to the ICE detention centers in Arizona have not been releasing people to the extent that they need to, nor have they done that nationwide. And I think it's because these the necessity of these institutions is actually being questioned in this moment, right? Like, right. actually, when it comes down to life or death, is the detention of this person necessary? And it's right. and ICE cannot does not want to concede that it does mm-hmm. not need to, to detain the number of people that it detains and doesn't, well, it doesn't need to detain anybody, right? And so it it's just sickening to know that part of ICE's reluctance to release people is continue, is creating a justification for the continued existence of right. that see Yeah. You know? Yeah, I completely agree. And also just, I work at, I work for two attorneys who represent people in detention centers, like people who have been detained and not, and also non-detained folks. And just the fact that we have to continue doing work, the like the structure of the immigration system is still continuing. 
is crazy to me as well you know just to add to like yeah. what you just said yeah I know I was just on a phone call with mm. my friend who's a kid's attorney in the immigration world and the detained kids are still being deported they're still being right. they're still in proceedings yeah. Yeah. she's still doing work <laughs> right uh, yeah and mo- mostly detained immigration court is still happening business as right. usual yeah and it's it's very frightening. Right, yeah. Yes. So would you say your self-care was the long walks that you've been taking? Yeah, I think I found myself starting to get scared of going outside a little bit, mm-hmm. overthinking. I'm like, oh my God, air particles and stuff. So just you know, realizing that I'm low risk right now, that you know, I should be going outside and moving. And just being more aware of doing things that will make me healthy in the long run, not just in this moment. So I think that's been my Mm -hmm. self-care. Yeah. What about you? I really appreciate that. And I appreciate my partner, Joseph, because he's one of the people in my life who's really advocating for walking outside. Like his psychiatrist told him today that people are kind of self-isolated. They're like, yes, we need to social distance and stay at home, but also most shelter in place orders allow for the daily walk and Mm. public health officials and mental health professionals are stating that it's important to still get sunshine and to still like feel the air around you yeah and just and to exercise as well so that you don't yeah because that impacts your mental health too yeah but and so but people are kind of unnecessarily not going outside but it's for a very understandable reason that I feel it as well just this fear especially because it's so apparent how these institutions that we've been told are here to protect us are not protecting us right and the constant the constant misinformation and Trump saying one thing and mm-hmm. Fauci saying another thing and even just the CDC itself it's not beneficial to wear masks stop wasting masks and save them for the medical professionals versus now like oh actually it's recommended that if you go out like everybody should wear a mask (laughs) you know it it all adds to the hysteria and the anxiety around it because you just it it really does feel unsafe even to just step outside of your door but that being said you know we do I I do think that still going outside for a walk even if it's just like a quick 10 minute walk is really Mm -hmm. important just like every day, elevating your your heart rate and mm-hmm. keeping keeping yourself moving. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think for me, my self care is is meditating, and yeah. So and also maintaining a routine. I'm a Taurus and definitely feel very lost if I don't have a routine. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like I literally do, like literally like to start my day, I do the exact same four things in the exact order, same order, like every day, like I wake up, make myself breakfast, I take my meds, I meditate and I shower. Nice. And yeah, my days have looked different. Like some days I'm busier at work, some days I'm just like really not, I'm just watching Love Island all day. And so it's a weird time, but yeah, having those, you know, because it's like, like, it's just so different to suddenly revert back to working from home all the time and Mm -hmm. yeah but I what's helped me retain a sense of normalcy during this really weird time is like sticking to that routine so that is my self-care that I've done and what I need to continue doing too yeah yeah I'm I, I feel the same I 
at first I didn't have a routine because I was just like, great, I'm home. Like I can just kind yeah. of like go with the flow. Yeah. yeah and then yeah. I, I, and then I was like, realized that probably wasn't the best for me just in terms of like what it made me feel throughout the day. Like, I just felt really uncertain. Like directionless. I did like help me, like ground me a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it did help ground me to like do a routine. Yeah. I have one too now. Yeah. No, I totally know what you mean, because I, I, I also, I was kind of, at first I thought I would love how unstructured the time mm-hmm. is now, you know, it's like, oh, I have anti-capitalist values, like, I'm going to rest, I'm going to chill, yeah. I'm going to do whatever I want, but it affected my mental health, because it, I just felt like I was directionless, Yeah. and it's like, and like, I def, don't get me wrong, like, I'm definitely chilling, right. definitely, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely like, working less, but, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel you. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for that check-in. Before we start diving into the book itself, I wanted to ask you what language you read the book in. I read it in English because, as you know, I originally read this book when I was in college for a class, and that's what I got it. I got it in English, and I just have it here with me. I, when you when I saw that question, I was like, oh, I didn't realize that they it was printed in other languages as well. I mean, I know that, like she said, she translated into Spanish first, I believe, yeah. and then, mm-hmm. so, okay. But yeah, I don't know what your fluency level is in Spanish, but it mm-hmm. was, it's just originally written in Spanish. And I found that it's always more rewarding to read mm-hmm. the, the text in Spanish if it was originally written in Spanish, because I like language does contain a lot of cultural meaning as well. And I think just certain things get lost in translation. Yeah. So that's just why I asked you because, but I think, I don't know why I, oh, I think, oh, I think like Joseph and I were, we were like on a trip somewhere, maybe in New Mexico, and we were just kind of walking around town and we were in Las Cruces. And then there was like this really cute bookstore, radical lefty bookstore. And we went inside and then I found this book and I was like, oh my God, the Little Review season two is going to be Central American writer focused. Hello, I have to buy this yeah. book. But it was like the English version. So that was how I knew. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting is like the, I definitely noticed typos and I was like, I wonder how well or like how edited it was because yeah there were a few and I kept noticing them and then also when I was reading it in my head I was like as you said like I wonder how much was lost I literally have a sticky note here it's lots must be missing question mark because it was at least two levels to get to what we have now so yeah I wonder I wonder what was lost and like I do a lot of translating in my everyday life in supporting two attorneys who and all my the clients that I see are Spanish speakers and it is when I do like translate declarations I always feel like I lose a level of something or it just doesn't Mm -hmm. it doesn't flow or something like that so yeah it does make me think what you know are different how you read it versus how I read it yeah for sure so 
Before we talk about the book itself, I just kind of want to give people background about Ligoberta Menchu in case they didn't know about her. Because actually, I didn't know about her until very recently. Like, I think in the last few years is when I personally learned about her. But she was a Nobel Prize winner. She's a Kiche woman who is an indigenous slash feminist rights activist. And she's uplifted the oppression that Guatemalan indigenous communities faced during and after the Guatemalan Civil War. The memoir that she wrote was something that she wrote when she was 23, which I think is pretty remarkable. And so she, her first language is Quiche, Spanish is her second language, and that is the language that the book was originally published in. It's been translated into multiple languages now, and it was originally published in 1983. I know that you read this book first in undergrad, so, and now how many years have you been out of college? It'll be three in May. Okay, so three years later, <laughs> how did you react differently to reading it now? Um, yeah, so I read it, so context, I read it for a class called Political Violence in Latin America. I remember, I didn't fully finish the book when I was reading it, because it was just like a, I think it was like a week full of deadlines for me, so I'm rushing through it. You said that you didn't really get to read it the first time. Yeah, like, I mean, I did read most of it. So I, when I reread it now, like, a lot of it came back to me. But I think I just, like, gave... I, I think I wasn't critical enough of the fact that it's not Rigoberta herself writing the book. Like, I wonder... Because Spanish is Rigoberta's second language, so I wonder how much was lost there, as well as, like, you know, I'm reading it in English. And I don't know, I just... I felt a little bit more critical about that component and I think I gave too much credit to the translator when I was first writing or reading it especially the the translator's note in the beginning but what about the translator's I, note in the beginning struck you well a lot of it talked about or maybe it is the intro but either one like them talked about kind of the relationship that was established between Anne Wright I believe is the translator and mm-hmm. or no the yeah and and kind of this relationship that was established and a lot of it was from her point of view so I just wonder what the level of comfort was on Rigoberto's behalf and just kind of I don't know I just felt like because it was taken down and typed up by this person who and, and edited by other people and a lot of it was moved around I wonder how much I mean, there was like a, a little note in there that was like, we try to like stay as true as possible to like, you know her narrative and what she said. But I like, have these thoughts about how much was it moved around, how much was edited, how what was Rigoberta's level in like sharing. So yeah, I mean, that was kind of the difference between what I, how I read it as an undergrad and how I'm reading it now. What did you feel uncomfortable with? Was it that um, she was, was it that Anne Wright said that she described Rigoberta's words as having, quote, beautiful simplicity. Yeah, and there was, like, part, I remember wrote a sticky note about this. I first wondered about the choice of the word Indian, because in the English title, it's titled, Ay Rigoberta Menchu, an Indian woman in Guatemala. And I don't know if she self-identifies mm-hmm. as that. Mm-hmm. Most of just people that I've come across identify as, Quiches, like their specific community, their specific right. community. Yeah. And this like concept of indigeneity is something that exists for some people and something that doesn't, like not necessarily spoken about in those terms for others. 
So I wondered about that. And I, I really appreciate you kind of bringing this to light because I honestly hadn't really thought about the role of the translator, even though mm-hmm. I'm so acutely aware of how things get lost in translation and also the power of translation right. in, different, in different contexts. Yeah. You know, kind of the the agency that you see to the translator in expressing mm-hmm. herself directly, I think is always really complex, especially when it's like Anne Wright sounds like a white woman, you know. They're they're the <laughs> yeah. ones they're the ones in Guatemala doing the missionary work. So I feel like yeah. that you know, it's like yeah. another one of those narratives. Yeah. <laughs> The first chapter starts with a a quote from Bokfuivu. I do not know how to pronounce that, but it's a text, and I probably really butchered it, and I'm really sorry to all the people I've ever met and have never met. (laughs) It's a text that recounts the mythology and the history of the Kiche people, and she starts with a quote, We have always lived here. We have the right to go on living where we are happy and where we want to die. Only here can we feel whole. This quote reminded me of something I talk about a lot on the podcast, which is the importance of the right to stay. The Mm -hmm. right to move and the right to stay are two interrelated things. And I think the right to stay is particularly very important for Indigenous people that have particular Mm -hmm. and specific historical relationships to land. And one of the things that I enjoyed the most about the book was the ways in which she articulated that and specified that. And so I wanted to ask you, how did reading this text allow you to better understand the importance of decolonization? I think it it obviously reinforced its importance hearing smaller or like more intimate details about, you know, mm-hmm. the different traditions they have with the land, the different ceremonies they perform, and just the value that they give to the land. And that stood in such like stark contrast with the exploitation by the landowners and the, you know, government at large. I mean, I've always been an advocate of decolonization. So yeah, it was just like, it really, it was beautiful the way that she explained everything. And it really just reinforced how important it is. And yeah. So to be clear, when we talk about decolonization, we're talking about giving back land rights to the indigenous people that historically had them stolen from colonizers, from European Mm -hmm, colonizers. And I say this because, especially within academia, there's been a very strange trend of Mm -hmm. using decolonization as a metaphor. So people will say things like, I, like I'm decolonizing the Ivy League or I'm decolonizing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've seen someone say that they were decolonizing Columbia Law School. Yeah. And it's so offensive. Yeah, I agree. Especially when the vast majority of people that are even saying things like that are mestizos. <laughs> like right. prob- probably more often than, I, than not white passing or light skinned. Mm-hmm. And it completely erases the importance of land rights, which are essential. And I think this theme of property rights and how that they subjugate indigenous populations within Guatemala is a, was a consistent theme throughout the book. Yeah, I agree. I have, I have a friend who talks a lot about this, about the 
the usage of decolonizing academia and how ridiculous it is. Right. And it's like you're literally participating in the institution. There's no decolonization happening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is really offensive to think that this essentially, essentially assimilation into, you know, talking about that person who's talking about law schools, like assimilation into acceptance of the Mm -hmm. U.S. legal system is completely antithetical to the principles of decolonization. And that's something that I really appreciated learning more about through the book was Mm -hmm. the the Kiche form of governance. I was really struck by her description of San Miguel Ustantan, which is her, where she's from, her home town, Mm -hmm. hometown, as a place where there are no big roads and no cars, only people can reach it. Mm-hmm. And she she discussed that she never considered herself or her family or her indigenous community as being governed by the Guatemalan government. And they didn't see police as an entity that worked for them or served mm-hmm. them. And it reminds me of how there are many historical examples of people living amongst each other and being able to self-govern without an authoritarian state. And I think there's just multiple examples of this, like how the soldiers aided the plantation owner by forcing people at gunpoint to vote for a certain candidate, right? So I wanted to ask you what you thought about the Kicha form of governance and how that's a mode of resistance against the Guatemalan nation state that is incredibly intertwined and complicit in U.S. imperialism. I mean, well, I thought like, it was it was interesting to me in the sense that I mean, I am, a, I live in the U.S., so it's everything in my life has been, government is everywhere in every aspect of my life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it was very different for me to read about a community that is so separate from that and doesn't see mm-hmm. themselves as a part of it. And the fact that they're actively resisting through keeping up their ceremonies, ceremonies and even throughout the book when they're like, when she's like, oh, uh, there's more the I could say. <laughs> yeah. Of course, um, you're a cat lover. I love it. <laughs> and even to the reader, like, I, I forget what page it was, but, you know, she does tell us a little bit and give us gives us insight into their ceremonies and traditions mm-hmm. and, you know, their way of life. But then there was a part, and I, I think you know it, but there's so many that I can't find the exact page. But she was like, there's, a, there's, you know, there's more. And I think it's at the very end, actually, where she's like, there's more, but these are our secrets, and I'm mm-hmm. not telling you. And I think preserving that and, you know, staying with the way that they've always existed in their in their form of governance is one of the biggest forms of resistance on top of the organizing that they're already doing. And there was a second part to your question, but <laughs> I can't recall it right now. The, oh, no, no, you answered it okay. about, yeah, and what your what your thoughts were about the Kicho form of governance. And I really appreciate this as well, because over time, and I know that I'm a lawyer, so this is the most <laughs> absurd thing to say ever, but I have come to have anarchist politics. <laughs> and uh, so far, in my understanding, the Zapatista community in Mexico was mm-hmm. the only iteration that I had seen of indigenous people creating a self-governing community and Mm -hmm. 
um, an autonomous community from a large nation state. Mm-hmm. And so it was really gratifying to learn about the Guatemalan context and about how this indigenous resistance is not something that is specific to Mexico. Of course, it's not. And it's just, I think we talk a lot about Central American erasure. And so mm-hmm. obviously the indigenous communities within Central American nation states, I think, are also erased or oh, yeah. under... Yeah they're not visible they're right. as compared to Mexican indigenous communities mm-hmm. so I, I really appreciated reading the book for that reason yeah me too yeah. Ligo Berta stated that there are 22 indigenous ethnic groups in Guatemala or 23 if you count mm-hmm. mestizos or ladinos so I wanted to ask, how did reading this text nuance your understanding of race in Guatemala? I, I, I'm not, I will say that I always knew that there was this tension between indigenous communities and mestizos or Latinos. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what really struck me as impactful in her narrative was that she would talk about, you know, class and being poor and all these like experiences, but that there were also other Latinos that lived at the same poverty level or also struggled mm-hmm. in this way, but that they would always be like, oh, but I'm not, I'm not you. And I don't look like you or, or, or like, I'm Latino, so I'm different. And, and I was like, yeah. that's crazy to me because it's literally almost the exact same struggles with landowners and, you know, finding food and surviving. And yet there was that distinction that, you know, that they felt would give them power or separate them and how that's just reinforced by the state as well. So, yeah, I mean, it was also, I mean, something that I was thinking about after reading too was she talked a lot about, you know, her experiences and navigating all through these spaces and her interactions with white landowners, the government, and then Latinos. And I wonder now about Afro-Guatemalans and she had any experiences with them, with those communities. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I would definitely like to know more about her. You know, she wrote, she wrote this or she talked, she spoke her narrative, this whole book, which is 23. So I wonder mm-hmm. like now that what are the later experiences? Yeah, especially since she, one of the things that she talked about when she was working at the Fincas, which is something I wanted to get into a little bit later, she talked about how one of the ways that Latinos were able to so effectively oppress multiple indigenous communities is by having these workforces that were comprised mm-hmm. of various indigenous communities that spoke different languages and couldn't communicate right. with each other. And so I think she most likely had various encounters that were not able to be fully developed mm-hmm. because there was that mm-hmm. language barrier. Yeah, and just when she started organizing, just moving through these various spaces and feeling kinship with a lot of people, but then just having that like inability to just fully communicate her thoughts or even just hear them was in, was interesting as well. Yeah, I wonder what her organizing looks like now that she like knows more languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's something, that's a good question I had after. Because yeah, she would stay with people and kind of communicate in, in the ways that she could. Um, but I wonder like what that looks like now and she feels like knowing more languages has helped her or, and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's definitely an important question because I think one of the more difficult things about organizing indigenous communities in Guatemala would be 
language access, especially because she meant mm-hmm. like she, when she talked about her hometown, she talked about how there aren't you know car accessible roads to get right. to where she lives. So it's it's quite difficult to actually get there. And so something that I've seen also with indigenous folks is that even within Kiche, there are dialects that mm-hmm. are that are regionally specific. And right. that makes sense because if generations and generations of families grow up in this one particular town, mm-hmm. they like a, a certain dialect will develop, particularly if they're not regularly interacting with commu- other Kicha communities or other indigenous communities surrounding them. Yeah. Yeah. Also, for, I think for me, something that... I think this just reinforced how race is is different in the Latin American context than what I've seen in the U.S. context. And particularly in how, you know, she shared that there were indigenous folks who acted as overseers at the fincas. Yeah. And who were kind of liaisons because they did speak Quiche, but they also spoke Spanish. And that was the, mm-hmm. that was their ability to have power over them. And that so and that is a particular thing about race in Latin America and like this idea of like being quote unquote mestizo is that yes of of course there's a colorist dimension to that but also there's sociocultural dimensions to it that include Catholic adopting Catholicism and speaking Spanish mm-hmm. and and moving to urban areas and so these are the kind of things that provide you economic privilege and of the structure the racialized economy in Latin America. And her describing that, her, her describing Kiche folks who were the overseers in the fincas, who got mm-hmm. paid more, who looked down upon benefited them. from the exploitation right. of their own people. Mm-hmm. And they were able to do so because they spoke Spanish. Right. And so it's like, even if you're brown, if you speak Spanish, if you adopt Catholic understandings of the world, mm-hmm. Know, if you're willing to move to an urbanized area, then that is how you can gain socioeconomic mobility. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So her description of the Ladino families that, quote, never really evicted the Kiche families, but just, quote, gradually took over, reminds me of the organized crime that has taken over entire parts of Central America that have a very similar quote-unquote debt scheme of going to business owners and requiring them to pay rent to the gangs in order to allow the business to survive unperturbed by the gang. And I wanted to ask you why it's important to distinguish robbery that's criminalized under capitalism and that which is sanctioned by it? Well, I think it's important to distinguish them because, I mean, it's clear who has power and whose interests are being upheld when it's okay when the government or these landowners came and just took land or things that obviously land doesn't belong to them. And then gangs, which are predominantly made up or comprised of low-income folks or you know, brown men and women and other people. And, and and in the context of El Salvador, like specifically U.S. deportees. Right, exactly. And 
yeah and and one in theory if you were to just keep these players nameless and uh, without identity you would think that they were the exact same thing exactly. but one of them yeah and that and that's why it's important to distinguish them because it's clear that the government has power so they're able to make this okay and then look criminalize on the exact same form because their interests aren't being upheld or they're not increasing their power I think it's really important to to talk about this in a context where people talk about quote-unquote free market capitalism. Actually, there's nothing free about it. These economies are set up to exploit Indigenous people. They're set up so that Latino families can own land and engage in that exploitation and personally benefit themselves, right? So it's just, I think, I really appreciated how clearly she laid out the ways in which her family could never escape poverty. Right. Like none, none of the indigenous families could ever escape poverty because they were set up to be dependent on these exploitative bosses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was okay. It wasn't a crime to to do this to indigenous communities and people. Right, right, and and it just I think again we have to talk. We have to think about the purpose of police and the purpose of prison. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, those were two institutions that were foreign to Rigoberta. And like you said, it's it's like a criminal act on the government's part to have Indigenous people live in that type of extreme poverty. Right? So she talked about how her father was an orphan and how her grandmother had to give away her eldest son to a man mm-hmm. in order for the boy not to go hungry because she did not have the means to provide enough food for the boy. So she she just gave him to somebody as as a commodity mm-hmm. in order and because that way at least he could eat. At least right. he could live. And it was very heart wrenching to read that because my grandma was actually born in Guatemala, but and she experienced a very similar thing. Her father died, and then her mom couldn't afford to feed her, so she gave her away to distant family members that essentially made my grandmother their servant when mm-hmm. she was seven years old. And so I was, I was very struck. And like my grandmother is brown and has indigenous features, but because of her being cut off from her parents, like I actually have no idea about the my family's Guatemalan history and and also borders are arbitrary mm-hmm. but a- anyways <laughs> I wanted to ask if any part of that family history resonated with yours because I, you are Salty as well yeah I mean we were my not we because it wasn't me but my dad and his siblings were fortunate enough to grow up with my grandma I mean they were extremely poor they always had to worry about you know how to feed themselves my dad is like one of one of ten and um, well technically one of twelve two of his siblings passed away when they were babies or maybe like mm-hmm. toddlers mm-hmm. but a lot of Rigoberta talking about walking to work or in the sense that like there were no cars or ways to transport I thought a lot about my dad, my dad's family, and how he would just have food to sell, little things that he could sell on his back, and he would take mm-hmm. his siblings, and how he had no childhood, essentially. And right, right. Yeah, and just that, how that has now impacted him, and how he's worked for 
I don't know how long he started so young. So his father was assassinated. They're from near the Andern border and how he would just have to work and my grandma would stay home and take care of the children. So mm-hmm. a lot of like working from being essentially like 10 years old, that's a part of my family's history. Like my aunts and uncles had to do that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, they were still fortunate enough to like grow up with my grandma, but there was, they they have, they consider her a sibling, but my grandma took in a little girl whose family essentially gave her up because they couldn't mm-hmm. um, feed her or like keep her. So, I mean, she still sees her birth mom, but she, my grandma took her in. So there's some similarities there, but it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, there are some similarities, but um, some differences as well. I just think it's important to name what people go through and right. have, have gone through mm-hmm. because it's no small thing to have been laboring since you were 10 years old that has Mm -hmm. a really dramatic psychological effect on a human being. I know that in my grandma manifests as she's never able to relax, you know? Mm -hmm. Not having anything to do is a very uncomfortable state for her. Yeah. And And I think it's the same. Yeah. Identifying yourself as a worker and really buying into this idea of yourself as a constant lifelong worker mm-hmm. and this idea that that's how you provide value for yourself, right? Right. Yeah, and it's it's just reinforced in you because that is the only thing that you had to do to survive. I mean, I see that in my dad, too. I think he derives a lot of his value as a father from providing money mm-hmm. and have conversations I'm like there's you know other values of emotional you know building emotional relationships but I mean a lot of his history has <laughs> an emotionally connected <laughs> yeah the next father right <laughs> who's that yeah <laughs> where are those yeah so yeah just but yeah he does drive a lot of his value from being able to work and knowing that the history behind that is that he literally had to had no childhood he he didn't have the chance to develop those kind of i think it's really important to state how this is also clearly a function of capitalism right this is why there's disdain for people who experience homelessness and for people who are disabled or otherwise unable to work because capitalism requires that each person produce and Mm -hmm. Uh, you are paid so you're under this capitalist scheme workers are told that they're paid the proportionate amount that their labor is valued even though we know that's not true and that bosses exploit surplus labor from workers Mm -hmm. that was something i thought that she outlined really well is yeah I, i was reminded of that quote that being poor is really expensive Mm-hmm. because she she talked about so like to kind of get more explicitly into the fincas the finca situation was that there was latino landowners who were essentially engaging in sharecropping or but it's like sharecropping indentured servitude where they they own the land they would pay indigenous people to work the land but would also but they had a debt scheme where if you broke a branch when you were picking cotton then that was a fine that you had to pay and kind of the 
the never-ending cycle of poverty was really psychologically debilitating for a lot of people and particularly for men. And mm-hmm. so frequently landowners would have cantinas where that were owned by the, the landowner and people would go there to drink to forget this fucked up situation that they're in. There's an ability, this like inability to provide for their family members. And then that would also be another debt that you could incur. And there's just so many different kinds of examples of debt that, you, you know, quote unquote debt that you could incur, which is actually just, it's just exploitation of the poor. And I think that we see that a lot in modern day as well. I could go into examples, but the only examples that I can think of right now sound kind of trite compared to this example. But like overdraft fees, for example, mm-hmm. right? right? Yeah. So just wanted to ask your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I was also just like these everyday things are just used against them as laborers in order for in order for the landowner to just not give them money. Like as you said, like mm-hmm. breaking a branch. These are like normal things that happen, and yeah. yet they're all added up. And just the careful or the extreme like oversight that that you need to have to like be able to add all of that up is ridiculous and just this preoccupation with watching everything that they're doing yeah to to be able to create those lists and then you know on top of like they're exploiting the fact that people want to relax and have a drink or even forget as you said Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. providing these spaces knowing that they're going to create more debt that they're themselves creating like the landowners are creating this fake debt providing these spaces in order to do that so they're like even like putting in the i don't know what the right word is but these incentives for lack of a better word to create debt which is just like this massive cycle so it being poor is expensive because at the end they just cannot <laughs> get out of it and right. it was just like heartbreaking to see that they would go you know for periods of time like months down to the thinkas to earn some money and then sometimes and she, she said that sometimes they would leave owing or not be like having made anything and to think that mm-hmm. they had spent hours and hours of every day to the point where Rigo had passed out when she was learning how to create like coffee, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Just like, the amount that she needed, she would pass out just spending hours doing that. And then to at the end of it all, not not having the money to then be able to like live outside of the thinkas. So it's just like this massive yeah. cycle. Yeah. That's why I describe it as indentured servitude because right. It was, it's cost-cutting to the extreme, trying to get the most profit from these people. Like she described how they would have like moldy beans and tortillas, that those were the things that they would be given to eat. And like, sometimes they weren't given enough to eat, especially mm-hmm. because kids weren't individually served. So parents with children automatically ate less because they had to ration whatever they were given to their children. It, it, and it's really not that distinct from the exploitation the exploitation of labor within prisons and detention centers as well. It's really the same idea of having a a, a constant labor pool that can never leave and can never quit and is readily accessible to you and also spending as little money as possible on their care. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one thing that I liked that Rioberta really outlined and just emphasized over and over again was that, you know, these kids dying from hunger or malnutrition was in no way the parents' fault. 
Mm-hmm. It was she always like attributed that to oppression by the government or oppression by these landowners. So I really like that she reinforced that and kept saying it over and over again and just like made sure that, you know, that was very clear. Yeah. yeah. These aren't real choices that people made, right? Like it's not I feel it's right. not a choice whether or not you want to give up a child. That's that's right. a forced circumstance. And another example of that is she talks about how people were quote unquote sold in order to find shelter for themselves. Like she, her grandmother had quote, she described it as had quote become her employer's mistress because she quote had nowhere else to go. And immediately that for me evoked images of enslaved black women who were raped Mm -hmm. by their, the people who the white people and in retrospect, people tried to rewrite that history and make, themselves here more comfortable with what it was by saying that it was consensual or that it was like a mistress and it's like no there's nothing consensual about that and this is a pre-ordained government scheme because this is ultimately about property rights and patriarchy intersecting why is that woman dependent on a man for shelter that is a direct function of her ability to access the economy and her ability to own property. Yeah, that's true. And I, yeah, I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was interesting, just like a lot of something that, I mean, this is like kind of related to what you just said, but towards the end when they were talking about women being involved in the movement, there was Mm -hmm. a moment where she almost referenced, I mean, she didn't, I think she didn't fully get into it, but she was saying how, there were like moments where I think people were trying to separate this organizing and to create like a separate woman's campaign or organize organizing entity because they people some people would see these land issues or labor issues as separate from women. And she was right. like, actually, no, like it's paternalistic to like separate that women are laborers. They work the land just as you do. So, yeah, yeah. It was interesting that she noted that within structure that's already like fighting for uh, some radical change and that to note that that like this is also working within that structure. I mean, I wasn't surprised to read that, but I it just, you know, there's like that as you said, property rights, land rights and patriarchy and yeah. Yeah. I feel like yeah, I I think this also for me reminded me of the importance of not romanticizing indigenous communities, which is, I think, something that a lot of people who identify as Mestizo or Latinx mm-hmm. do. Right. Uh, part- particularly talking about Salvadoran people. Right. Particular, particularly people who have had government-sanctioned genocide mm-hmm. in their history and who, as a result, have been forcibly cut off from their indigenous roots there's often a kind of romanticization that happens of Mm -hmm. your past indigenous ancestors. And the truth is that indigenous people are complex in the way that everybody else is complex. So it's just like, that's kind of problematic romanticization that occurs. And I, I think I appreciated that she was there for that critique. Right. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I agree. 
And she references machismo a few times in the text as well, but always contrasts what she experienced within her community and like the like the machismo that she would see in her community versus like what she saw outside. How I mean that was a little difficult for me to read just from an like an outside point of view where I'm I'm <laughs> I believe in equity and women and men and other people being able to be all you know have equal rights and just like sometimes communities are problematic just as everyone else's and she did reference a few points where machismo did come into play so I really appreciated her like giving that kind of insight into that yeah definitely yeah she when you discussed this in the seminar did you talk about the white man who tried to come for her memoir and said and like did a historical deep dive and wrote a whole book about how certain things that she narrated in the memoir couldn't have happened to her specifically and like might have happened historically to other people but not her no i didn't know we didn't talk about it i feel like i know what you're saying because i think i like saw it on google or something yeah but we we didn't speak on it no okay yeah because i just was talking to a friend and i mentioned this and that was the first thing that she said to me and one of the actually a question that i had that was unclear to me was what role her father played in the guatemalan army because she talked about how it was very common for indigenous men to be mm-hmm. conscripted into the army, because especially if they're very poor, but you know, and then they don't receive any other government in in benefit in return. And she talked about her own father specifically, and how it taught him to be a man, and that the military leadership treated soldiers like objects and taught them everything by brute force. And I thought that was interesting because the Guatemalan Civil War happened between 1960 and 1996. Mm -hmm. This book was published in 1983. So her father could have served during the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And if he he did, what part did he play? Mm -hmm. Because the Guatemalan army, assisted by the U.S., engaged in targeted ethnocide of indigenous people. So that was the question that I had. What's interesting to me is I feel like I did not read in this book her father being in the army, which is, when I saw that, I was like, what? I don't think I read that in here. Oh, it's pretty early on in the book. Okay. Let me see. And see if it's like, and if it was something that's just mentioned once, and it's also like, how is that only mentioned once? Yeah. It's page three. She said towards the, it's on the second paragraph towards the end. Let's see. My father was 18 by this time and was my grandmother's right arm. He had to work day and night to provide for my grandmother and his brother's. Unfortunately, oh, that's a typo. Unfortunately, that was just when they were rounding young men up for military service and they took my father off, leaving my grandmother on her own again with her two sons. My father learned a lot of bad things in the army, but he also learned to be a man. He said they treated you like an object and taught you everything by brute force. But he did learn how to fight. He was in the army for a long, hard year. 
And when he got back home, he found my grandmother was dying. So it was only for a year of her father's life. So I can see why she didn't necessarily get into the specifics of what he was doing. But I was just caught up by the fact that he, as an indigenous man, served in the Guatemalan army that was engaging in ethnocide. So I wanted to kind of understand and unpack that. Mm-hmm. His mother was sick when he came back. Yeah. So what's interesting to me is that my my family is leftist in terms of the Salvadorian Civil War. They mm-hmm. were always on that side of things. So but FMLN. Yeah, FMLN. And there's still a support. And I have my one of my aunts is married to a man who served in the Salvadoran army. And I feel as if he really didn't, he just like joined and felt like he was fighting for his nation. And I, I don't really talk to him about it so much because it's very traumatic for him. But to this day, he still feels as if he was like in the right or he still is like influenced by these these ideas that were like forced upon him in the army and Mm -hmm. so yeah I'm like it's it's interesting to me like that dynamic because there was also that other part in the book where they were learning how to set up traps for soldiers and they caught a soldier and I think he ended up being an indigenous man from another community and he was like I don't really believe in this this is just like I was caught up in this and I'm like forced to do this so yeah it's interesting to me that she didn't say more about that there and it was just kind of written in the very beginning I literally even forgot about it because it was so like you know tiny in there yeah I wonder I think this is very complicated yeah because my dad was also leftist and he was involved in the guerrilla and so was my uncle who I never met because he was assassinated he was shot in the street Mm -hmm. because of his political beliefs and that was why my family that's why my parents in particular had to flee El Salvador and came to the U.S. Mm -hmm. to seek asylum and Mm -hmm. I know that the recruitment of guerrilla members was very complicated because in a lot of situations because they were they they're mobilizing poor people and mm-hmm. not and not always doing the political education work that I think is necessary to really organize yeah. people and so right. as a result it just it at times it felt a little bit exploitative and I think that mm-hmm. that that was yeah, that's a perspective that I have of talking to both my parents. Mm-hmm. The is recruited from low-income communities, and it's like a lot of times how much political education is going on here and how much right. of this is like you taking advantage of this very desperate person who has no other option but to take up arms with you. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's like it's it's complicated because there's power dynamics within, yeah. the, within this. And I'm actually a, a part of a lit review that I'm doing with Maria, our other sorority sister. Where we read a memoir of Gioconda Belli, who was a Sandinista, a Nicaraguan revolutionary. Mm-hmm. She also talked about how there was factions within the Sandinista party, 
on this very question of mm -hmm. what what will it take to mobilize poor communities? Can there be a spontaneous uprising when if we do a coordinated attack on the government? Or can that never happen unless we do political education first? Mm -hmm. And those are those are like two divergent paths. And I think that those same questions exist here, right? right. I think that both the government and I would I would likely say, well, I don't know. I mean I think I guess the Guatemalan context could be different. And I think in particular what I saw is right. the government military taking advantage of Yeah of poor people who they yeah. know that they that they have total coercive control over. Yeah. Yeah, and that was evident in that specific part about that one soldier they captured where he was just like he's just like this is forced upon me because if I right. don't do what they say Something that really disgusted me was learning about the U.S. involvement in the Guatemalan Civil War. So in the 1960s, the U.S. was intimately involved in equipping and training Guatemalan security forces that were then the people that murdered thousands of Guatemalans and specifically indigenous Guatemalans during the Civil War. And even though the U.S. government at the time claimed that they were not involved, they still retained close ties to the Guatemalan government up until the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And that was when the Guatemalan government was massacring whole villages of indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And that's something that U.S. officials were aware of the whole time. And this, the, specific in, the specific interest that the U.S. had is completely monetary, mostly protecting the interests of United Fruit Company, which has like a notorious presence in Central America historically. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask what, what your reflections were on that, particularly as a person who is Salvadoran American. I mean, I think it's always difficult. I think I always find it hard to talk about I mean, personally, it from a personal perspective, it, I feel like it completely changed the course of my family's history. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it, it's just, I don't know. It, yeah, it completely changed our history, like, our relationship to the land there. I often think about destabilized the entire region and it's still, yeah. you know, we're still feeling the aftermath and I often think about now that I've traveled to Central America more frequently about the relationships to land and the ability to go back. And mm -hmm. I like I get really scared sometimes because, you know, just from, like visually being seeing everything from a firsthand point of view, just like being there. I see uh, a lot of people that I knew from when I was younger are no longer there. So they've lost houses or their land there. And what does the what is it going to look like in a few years? And a lot of the people that are still there from where my parents are from are very old. And so I'm like, well, in like a few 20 to 30 years, this place is going to be completely empty. So I always like when I think about civil wars that happened in Central America, I often think about 
what the land is going to look like later in in terms of Rodrigo Huerta's context. I always a lot of what she talked about was the soldiers would go up the the altiplano where she lived, mm-hmm. and they would just equated indigenous resistance to communism. That was yeah. always whole section where they were uh, killing her brother. They were like talking about the Soviet Union and communism, and it was just this. I don't know. It was just wild to me how the soldiers. I mean, I guess there's the. I mean, the soldiers in government were using like talk about communism to kind of justify or they're massacring indigenous communities. All, and all because of their, their own interests and gaining money and capitalism. So yeah, that kind of went like in very weird directions. But yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. That was just like my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I totally get what you're saying because so much of this conversation really ultimately is about people's relationships to land and yeah. the capitalist interests that overtake historical relationships to land and more sustainable understandings of the land Mm -hmm. too. Because I was very struck by the way that her family survived is Mm -hmm. by knowing how to extract any kind of nutrient from their surroundings so that they could feed themselves. They fed themselves with plants that grew in the finca. They grew their own maize and they they would use the cobs of corn to make dog food. Mm-hmm. And, but they, she also talked about how sometimes actually that would just be the food that they would eat. Mm-hmm. And they knew how to take the cob and to make it something that could be edible. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course they were not well nourished. It wasn't. Yeah. But, they understood how the best ways to use the land and i think that that notion the notion of property right is is central to this whole discussion of of central america and the dismantling Mm -hmm. of the economy there because it's land ownership that i know for guatemala and salvador in particular was the central issue that led to the civil war Mm -hmm. this is complete unequal land ownership where right. I think in the Salvador by the time I got to be the Civil War there was something like 12 families that owned all the land mm-hmm. in the Salvador mm-hmm. and particularly when you're talking about a group of people that have for generations lived done subsistence right. farming on the land taking away land ownership is devastating right and the shocked a lot about like the respect that they have for life and you know this the the food that they would, and how even like killing an animal was very hard for them and just like this complete respect that they had for earth and how they saw like the sun and earth and to have that all be destroyed by in El Salvador's context all families or in I'm sure similar amounts in, in Guatemala of people just like a few concentrated to exploit the land and completely destroy it for coffee, cotton, money. Yeah, it was devastating to to read that. Yeah. So I wanted to go in a slightly different direction now mm-hmm. and 
talk about how there's one thing that she said that really caught me. She said that Kiche ancestors would be shocked at men, many of the things that go on in the present day, including mm-hmm. family planning. Mm-hmm. And she said it, it's an insult to our culture and a way of swindling the people to get money out of them. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask, how did you understand this quote? How is family planning an insult to the Kiche culture? And how do we understand this idea in a context of government-sanctioned genocide of Kiche people? So I kind of understood it from the context of a lot of or in conversation with when she talked about the malnutrition and death of children and a lot of her, the conversation Mm -hmm. on marriage, I noticed was about children and being mothers and fathers and less about being romantic partners, I believe. I think it was just not that they couldn't be romantic partners, but that the emphasis was on children. Like a lot of the conversations that were had between a mother and daughter were on like how to be like a good mother and the conversations between like a father, a grandfather, and like a son were on like how to feed your children. Mm-hmm. And so I think that from when, when I read it, I, there's a lot of pressure, I believe, in being able to keep your community going because there's already so much death mm-hmm. and creating life. Yeah, especially so like that, preserving the yeah, culture. Right, yeah. And yeah, like creating life for the purpose of like continuing and so I think that it was seen as like this this like man-made type of thing I think there was a lot lot of other conversations about like technology and education and how those were threats to indigenous ways of life so I thought that that's how I read it was her like family planning being something that she sees as imposed or a part of a campaign to just end indigenous communities and indigenous life yeah and I think, I think this is, it reminded me of the importance of the reproductive justice lens, because when we talk about reproductive justice, we need to have these historical and racialized mm-hmm. understandings in mind, because you can't just talk about the right to abortion, we need to talk about the right of Indigenous women to raise families right. in a context where the government has tried to completely kill Indigenous mm-hmm. communities. And I think something I was really struck by also was how she delineated that for Kiche people, when a baby is born, it's, yes, mother and father are very important roles, but also the community mm-hmm. plays a central yeah. role. Right. Like, I was incredibly struck by the ceremonies that involve the whole community when a child is born. For, I think, once eight days after the baby's born, neighbors are traditionally expected to arrive and either give the baby a gift or a mother the gift and the mother's expected to try all the food that she gets to show how appreciate how appreciative she is of her neighbor's kindness and it's like the more people that visit that signifies that's important because that signifies the amount of responsibility that, that child mm-hmm. is going to have to the community right yeah yeah i was a lot you know like she spoke a lot about not having much to eat and survival, but then also spoke about how so many people would come together to give to these like community ceremonies in which they would like bring a lot and then a lot of food. And then also she spoke about how they would always do like someone needed it or in case someone got sick. So 
yeah, there was a lot of conversation about community and it was beautiful because I just, I've never experienced something like that. People who have so little are so willing to work extra or do more or give up what they already have for other people, not just to survive, but to celebrate. Yeah, I thought that that was really cool too. And especially I really appreciated the appreciation for people who give life. And there are certain traditions that she pointed out. It's considered rude to eat in front of a pregnant woman unless you sh- mm. uh, you share your food with her. Yeah. Because everybody needs to recognize that that individual is eating for two people. And yeah. so they always need to be well nourished because that baby is going to be a community member and like we care for a community. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that she discusses is how Latinos wearing indigenous clothing is very offensive. And so I wanted to ask you as a Salvadorian slash self-identified white Latina, what is your relationship to indigenous art and clothing? I, when I read this question, I was like, I don't really know how to answer because I feel like I have no relationship to indigenous art or clothing. Good, but I, because I'm, so I, I think maybe I should just tell my own story and expose my own self then. But yeah, so Joseph and I went to Guatemala a few years ago, like two years, two or three years ago or something. And I bought Mayan shirt that had been embroidered by an indigenous woman. And I wanted to wear it. And Joseph was like trying to tell me that it was inappropriate for me to wear it. And I was like, you fucking white man need to calm the fuck down. Don't you literally have ancestors from Spain? Like, please sit the fuck down. But then, and it was funny because I'm very stubborn. And so I just really like told him to fuck off. But then months later, really funny because literally this, I was in, I was at Stanford Law in Palo Alto, very amongst a very rich and privileged group of people and there was an international student in my class who I who was just white I don't I think she was from Brazil but she was a white person and she came in wearing a shirt that looked almost exactly like what I had bought (laughs) and I was so upset and I was like oh my fucking god I cannot be that woman like and then I'll just and then it all just clicked I think because it was easier for me to digest the absurdity of her wearing it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I mean it's interesting to me because I feel like certain attire is like romanticized here as representative or like like it's attributed to Latinidad or whatever but in El Salvador itself never seen any of my cousins wearing any indigenous art or clothing yeah yeah yeah. so yeah it's definitely romanticized here but I mean I've always tried to be conscious of not appropriating and you know of being conscious of like my identity and not uh, thinking that I'm indigenous when I'm not or trying to yeah so I'm I think that's why I haven't like I don't have a story like that because I'm always can't do that that's very good yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah, unfortunately had to do a misstep. Yeah. <laughs> but you're here now, so. I'm yeah. here now. Yeah. <laughs> and I am your problematic fave for everyone who's listening. <laughs> so one of the things that she explained was how indigenous communities have u- utilized Catholicism 
as just another channel of expression and contrary to this narrative that Spain and its Catholic missionaries came into Latin America, colonized it, and firmly implanted Catholicism without any kind of indigenous resistance, it's actually not true. There's this like across so many indigenous communities, there are there's examples of syncretism of taking the parts of Catholicism that make sense with their own pre-existing religious beliefs and adopting those Catholic practices under the guise of staying safe from colonial powers, but ultimately still retaining their own core true religious beliefs. And I wanted to ask you how we separate that which has been reclaimed within that sphere and that which was imposed during colonial time. Yeah, I think with when there's like a reclamation of sorts, if, I don't know if that's the right word, but when you're reclaiming, there is still like, you still retain that sense that this was imposed because right. like there would be no, you can't reclaim if it was never imposed. Right. Um, like when she first spoke about religion, I, I mean, it was really early on in her life. I was a little put off. I was like, there's no conversation here about how this is a tool of colonialism. But, I mean, later on she does get into it a little bit more. And I think that, I think that ultimately, like, she does talk about, very well about the relationship that she has with that religion, uh, with Catholicism, and how it's different from the church as an institution that serves capitalist interests, that serves colonial interests. And... She does contrast that with how she experiences and uses her religion as a tool of, uh, for her organizing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's very, like I said, it's very difficult to separate in the sense that, I mean, I think they're very different. When she said that, I was like, okay, I'm glad that, you know, it's being addressed in the book. Yeah. And they're they're very different. And it was also like, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much of it she felt like it was a choice in the beginning, but at the end, it did feel like a choice to continue mm-hmm. practicing in that religion in her own way. And, you know, in contrast to like what we normally think of as like organized Catholic practices. But at the end of the day, it is, it is very hard to separate in the sense that you can you can't really reclaim something unless it's been imposed. If we're talking about, yeah, like in terms of religion. Right. So, yeah, it's very hard to separate. But it is distinct. The religion she practices now, it seems very distinct from what was the original intent of going to these indigenous communities and imposing this religion on them. Especially when you think about like how she said that the purpose of it was probably to keep them passive to what was happening to them on Earth. Because there was right. like a promise of a kingdom and like right. you suffer all- now and then yeah. you get the prize later. Right. And then how she's using it towards the end of the book, which is to kind of empower people and you know, showing different examples from the Bible. It's just that you can fight. Yeah. Well, you we have been <laughs> talking for an hour and a half and I don't want to take up too much of your Tuesday evening because as we were talking about in the beginning these times require rest so as the last question I just wanted to ask what you appreciated and are taking away from reading this book again 
I think I just, I don't know, I, from my own personal background in El Salvador, I'm from like Oriente. I, when I go there and personally, when I talk a lot about El Salvador, I don't really think about or talk or advocate for indigenous communities. And I know that's something that I definitely want to work on. Mm -hmm. And also in the work that I do, like as my job, we do have, we've had people come to seek legal assistance who are from indigenous communities in Guatemala and you know Mm -hmm. we always try to help them in any way we can including getting like translators but I just want to keep this narrative in mind and to do more work in like learning more about indigenous communities and how they've really been at the forefront of the resistance against the state whether it be Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua or the U.S. Yeah, and the U.S., but yeah, I just have Central America in my head. But yeah, and just to really follow them and not think that I have to be like a leader. I I definitely want to be able to follow Mm -hmm. from the people at the forefront of these things and not think that I'm the one who's knowledgeable or is the one who should be doing the leading in anything. For sure. Yeah. Oh, well, I loved our chat and we'll have to do just like a regular Google Hangout. Yeah. And also, hopefully, you can be back on the pod to talk more about your work. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank you for having me. It was amazing. Yes. <laughs>